Yeah, we are in the middle of a series called Cloud of Witnesses. This is the seventh week of that series, uh, and we're walking through chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and what we're doing is we're looking at faith, the question of what is faith? Uh, how is faith different from belief? What does it mean to put my faith in Jesus? And the definition of faith we've been using so far in this series is the total alignment of ourselves with the person and the promises of Christ. When we say total alignment, we mean our whole beings, our mind, our will, our body, all of us is aligned with Christ. That is what it means to have faith. And we've looked at a whole bunch of people in chapter 11 so far. We've looked at Cain and Abel. We've looked at Noah, Enoch, Abraham, and Sarah. And last week, Alistair preached a very difficult sermon on the story of Abraham and Isaac. God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. The son that God himself promised he would give to him. The son through whom Abraham would become a great nation, a great people. That he would be a blessing to all nations. And Abraham was faithful to that call to take his son to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Something I think none of us could possibly have done. But in the end, it's it's not required. In the end, God himself provides the sacrifice in place of Isaac. And we saw instead of our own lives, God demanding for sin. He provides his own son as well in place of us. And this week we move from Abraham and Isaac to Moses. And the question we're asking, as with every week, is what does this person's faith, in this case Moses, tell us about faith generally? But more important than that, what does Moses' faith tell us about God? What does it tell us about the one in whom we put our faith? And what the writer of Hebrews wants to show us with the story of Moses is that true faith is a faith that chooses suffering over power. True faith is a faith that chooses suffering over power. And I have a hard time even saying that. Everything in me revolts against that statement. But if faith is what we've been saying all of these weeks, that it's the total alignment of ourselves with the person and promises of Christ, then it should be no surprise that it means suffering. Because faith is to identify ourselves with the suffering servant, the crucified and the risen Christ. Of course we're going to suffer, because God himself suffers. Now, I've given away everything I'm going to say in this sermon right there, and I think that's going to help us to stay focused on this, help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, as it were, as we go through this. So I'm going to break up the sermon into two parts. First, I want to look at the power of the world, power of the world. And second, I want to look at the power of God. So let's get into it. If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 11. If you have a phone, open it up. Just get the Bible in front of you somehow. Um, We're going to start with verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, between last week and this week, we've skipped over a pretty significant chunk of Israel's history. Uh, Without going into all the details, we're at the point now that Abraham's children, this nation through whom all the other nations are supposed to be blessed, are now slaves in Egypt. And Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, is afraid of these people. He's afraid of his slaves, the Israelites. There's a lot of them. And he worries that they're going to rise up against him, they're going to side with his enemies, and they're going to overthrow him. So what he does is he treats them more and more harshly, Exodus tells us. But the more he oppresses them, the more they seem to multiply 
and fill the land. So Pharaoh came up with a plan to put a stop to this, put a stop to their growth. He brought in the Hebrew midwives, and he told them that when a Hebrew woman, an Israelite woman, gives birth to a child, if it's a girl, she's allowed to live. If it's a boy, he's to be killed right then and there on the spot. And this is the edict that the writer of Hebrews is referring to, the king's edict. And I want us to think about the kind of power that that is, the kind of power that the king is exercising here. Pharaoh is the king of the most powerful kingdom of the time. He's got untold wealth and treasure. He has the most powerful military at the time. He had dictatorial authority to do whatever he wanted to do in his kingdom. And more than that, like all the kings at this time, he's thought to be a god. He thinks of himself as a god, and he expects people to worship him as a god. It's impressive. It's incredibly impressive. And everything about Pharaoh's kingdom would have been chosen carefully to make others fear him. Those in his kingdom fear him. The other nations fear him. Yet the way he chooses to exercise his power is to have the male children born of his slaves killed. Pharaoh's power, as with that of pretty much all the greatest rulers we've seen in history, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, it rests entirely on how much people fear him. He's paranoid that someone or a whole people might rise up against him. So he orders the most vulnerable, the newborn babies of his slaves, put to death. And as awful as we think that is, as awful as it is to look at these leaders throughout history, I mean, we're all, we all have this kind of tendency within us to exercise power in the same sort of way, not to the same degree. But whether it's grades in school or making friends, winning the girl or guy that we want to date, sports competitions, music competitions, that gives myself away there, sport music competitions. So much of what we do and how we make our way in the world is through the exercise of power. I want to be better than those around me. I want to be smarter and faster and stronger. I want to be the life of the party. I want to get the job over that other person. And in my worst moments, I don't really care what it takes in order for me to do that. Maybe I speak badly about somebody else, helping to bolster my own, my own perspective in their eyes. Maybe I'll rejoice when others don't do as well as I do and I get to ride that curve to the top of my class. I'll muster up all the charm that I have to get in with the crowd that I want to be with, even if it means leaving other people out. All of those are just ways of me exercising my power over other people, trying to hold on to that which I think I've earned. Yet in spite of Pharaoh's immense power, in spite of what he could do to them, Moses' parents, who are just slaves, they choose to disobey this edict. They choose not to kill this newborn baby, Moses. And the text gives us two reasons why they choose not to do this. The first is that the child is beautiful that the child is beautiful. Now commentators are a little unsure of what to do with this phrase, the child was beautiful. It doesn't seem like a good reason. Um, I mean, maybe it is, all children are beautiful. I was on the bus a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm looking after Ethan on Fridays now that carries back at work. And I took Ethan on the bus to go, I think, pick up service sheets or something. And we got on a cambia. The next stop, this old man got on. He was 93 years old, I found out later, in his motorized wheelchair. And once he got in and got settled, he was making faces at Ethan. He was trying to make him smile. And he finally got a smile out of him. It's not very difficult. Uh, and uh, he said, I got a smile out of her. And I laughed. And then he said, how old is she? 
And I said, actually, he's my son. He's 14 months. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. He's just so beautiful. <laughs> I thought he must be a girl. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Maybe Moses is just a very beautiful child. But most commentators seem to think there's something a little deeper going on here. That there's something otherworldly about Moses. Perhaps they had a sense that God was going to use him in some way. They didn't know. We don't know what it means. But that's the first reason. The other reason it says that they refuse to obey this edict is because they do not fear the king. They do not fear the king. In many ways, the story of Moses is the ironic reversal of the story we had last week, the story of Abraham and Isaac. See, Abraham shows his obedient faith by being willing to kill his son. But Moses' parents show their obedient faith by refusing to kill their son. And this could get confusing. I mean, two sermons, two weeks in a row, stories about killing a baby boy with an entirely different outcome. But the difference is clear between these two stories. At least it should be pretty clear. The difference rests on who it is that gives the commandment to do these things. With Isaac, it's God who gives the commandment, the one who made his covenant with Abraham, who asked him to sacrifice his one and only son. And Abraham responds in obedient faith because of these promises that God has made to him, promises to give him a name and make him a great people and give him a land and that he would be a blessing to all people. And if it's God who promises these things, then God is going to be the one to fulfill them. But with Moses, it's Pharaoh who gives the commandment, a commandment rooted in paranoia, a desperate attempt to maintain his grip over his people. And not only that, but Pharaoh expects the Israelites to obey out of fear. And so Moses' parents refuse to do that. They refuse to obey this king's edict. For that very reason, they refuse to obey a king who wields this sort of tyrannical authority. They had their eyes so fixed on these promises of God to Abraham that they refused to do anything that might thwart these promises. But it's not just Moses' parents who refused to obey the king out of fear. It's Moses himself, the text shows us. Now we need to remember a little bit more of the story out of Exodus at this point. So let's back up a little bit. Moses' parents refused to obey. They let the child live for three months. At the end of three months, I mean, he's hidden for three months. At the end of three months, they put him in a basket, and they cover it with tar and bitumen, and they put him in the river, and they hide him amongst the reeds. And one day when Pharaoh's daughter is bathing, the same day, she sees the basket, and she calls her servant to go and get the basket, and when she opens it, she sees that it's a child, and the child is crying, and she takes pity on the child. She knows that this is a child of the slaves, the Hebrews, so she adopts him. And so Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, surrounded by all the wealth and the power and the prestige that comes along with that kind of upbringing. But one day, when Moses has grown up, he goes out and he sees his own people, the Israelites, the slaves. And he saw an Egyptian beating one of his own people. And when no one was looking, Moses killed the Egyptian. Now, we're not going to get into that part of the story, but it's important to know what kind of goes on after that. Because word gets around about what Moses has done, and he fears what Pharaoh might do to him as a result. So he runs away. He runs to Midian, uh, another land adjacent to it. And he settles down, and he gets married, and he has a son. 
And while he's living in Midian, the book of Exodus records that the cry of the Israelites goes up to God. God hears the cry of his people. Look at Exodus 2. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so one day while Moses is out tending his father-in-law's flock, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame out of the midst of a bush. You know this story, the story of the burning bush. And this is what God says to Moses through that experience. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of all their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of that land, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. This is what God tells Moses to do. And Moses is deeply reluctant to do this. Go and stand before the king. But he does it. He goes and stands before him. And God does exactly what he promises he will do. He delivers his people from their suffering. And as Hebrews records in verse 27 of chapter 11. By faith he, that is Moses, left Egypt. Not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses stands before Pharaoh, Pharaoh with all of his power, his authority, his wealth, and he demands the release of God's people. And he stands unafraid, the text says. But make no mistake, his fearlessness before Pharaoh is not because of anything that he has done, anything that he has accomplished. Moses has no power. He has no authority. He is nobody in this kingdom. No ability to rescue his people. He stands before Pharaoh resting entirely on God's promise that he will be the one to do this. By faith, Moses did this, it says. Faith that he who has promised is faithful to hold up his promise. And so this event, the Exodus event, becomes the central event in Israel's identity as a people. I mean, it still is. More than anything else, the Exodus is what shapes their understanding of who God is. I mean, their knowledge of who God is. The God of Israel is their redeemer, their savior, the one who with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivered them from oppression, who fought on their behalf against Pharaoh, who drowned Pharaoh's entire army while they just sat there and watched. And more than anything else, the Exodus shapes their understanding of who they are as a people before God. They are a redeemed people, a saved people, a people called and delivered by God from oppression and from slavery. And it's here that I want to move into the second point of the sermon. Because what's so remarkable about this text is what it shows us about how God does his saving work, about how God redeems his people from oppression and from slavery. And that is through powerlessness. Our faith is in the one who, though more powerful than anything, chose powerlessness and shame. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the good news of Jesus. That God delivered Israel, that God delivers us, 
in the most foolish way we can possibly imagine, by surrendering power. So that's what I want to look at first in the second half. What do I mean when I say that God's power is most perfectly displayed in powerlessness? And then I want to end on a more practical note. I want to look at a few of the implications of this as we try to live out our faith in the world. So the big picture. Let's read verses 25 and 26 in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses, having all the privilege that comes with growing up in Pharaoh's household, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave it up, all of it. He wants nothing to do with Pharaoh when he sees his own people the situation that his own people are in, their daily suffering. He has a change of identity, it seems. He's always been an Israelite, but it's only now, when he sees their affliction, that he makes the choice to consciously turn from the life that he has known, the life of privilege and prestige, and to align himself with the sufferings of his own people. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But the question is, why? Does he do this? He could easily have just turned a blind eye to this. He could easily have forgotten his real heritage and instead identified more and more with his adopted family, with Pharaoh. But he doesn't. Why does he not? Well, I think the answer comes in verse 26, which I think is the most baffling of all the verses in this section. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Okay, we're talking about the Exodus. We're talking about the faith of Moses. What are we doing all of a sudden talking about Christ in the midst of that? Jesus wasn't in the Exodus narrative as much as I can see it, at least not directly anyway. Well, when you're studying a text like this and you come up against a passage that just doesn't seem to make any sense, it's probably where you need to camp because it's probably the key to understanding the rest of it. And in this case, I think that holds true. Reproach is a, is a weird word. It's not a word we use a great deal anymore. I don't really ever use it, I don't think. Uh, you reproached me, how dare you. Um, what the writer of Hebrews probably means is something closer to shame. Shame. And when you read the verse like that, with shame in place of reproach, it's quite different. He considered the shame of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses chooses mistreatment with the people of God because this is to be God's way in the world. To be shamed with Christ, Hebrews says, is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt or England or Saudi Arabia or whatever kingdom you can possibly come up with. There is nothing more valuable or more precious in the universe than a rejected and mocked and crucified Jesus. And if this seems like foolishness, what I'm saying, it's because it is. And we know that it is. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. For the foolishness of God is wiser than, man, than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brother. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What Paul is saying is that we have nothing to offer God. It doesn't matter if you're the most powerful person in this room, the most powerful person in the world, if you have the best education, you come from the best family, if you have the most influential friends. It just doesn't matter. You have nothing to boast about. Because God chose not what is powerful or strong or wise, but what is low and despised to make us his treasured possession. He chose a rejected and a mocked and a crucified Jesus. And that is the gospel. And as Paul reminds us in Romans, we mustn't be ashamed of that. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. This is the sort of God that we put our faith in. And in so doing, we recognize that we have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. We're a powerless people in the hands of a willingly powerless God. We are a powerless people in the hands of a willingly powerless God. So if this is the God that we worship, if this is the God with whom we have totally identified ourselves, then what implications does that have for how we actually live out our faith in the world? And I want to say three. The first and the most important of these is that we have to continually preach this to ourselves. And that might seem like a bit of a weak application, but it's not, trust me. We are a powerless people saved by a willingly powerless God. We bring nothing to this, and we forget it constantly. We slip so easily into thinking that we can offer something, that if I make something and enough of myself that God will accept me, that he will love me. Or if I make nothing, of myself, that God will somehow love me or accept me. But neither of those is right. To put my faith in Christ is to recognize that I am powerless to affect any kind of relationship with God. God is the one who rescues and redeems me. And not simply from political oppression, he does that, but from the oppression of sin that plagues every part of me. The second thing I want to say by way of application is that to put our faith in the crucified Messiah means, like Moses, to choose mistreatment with the people of God rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, a point of clarification. When the writer of Hebrews says this about Moses, he doesn't mean that money or wealth or power are sinful in and of themselves. Moses chooses to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, which come through sin. These things are sinful in the fact that they come through sin. For Moses to have turned a blind eye to his people, to the plight of his brothers and sisters who were suffering, in order to go on and enjoy wealth, that would have been deeply, deeply sinful. The sin in this situation is the act of distancing himself from those who are suffering. What's at issue here is where our allegiances lie. And we could talk about a hundred ways in which this plays out. We turn a blind eye to the human cost of all sorts of things that we do. Where our clothes come from, the food we eat, 
the chocolate we just gave out at Halloween. But I think the most damaging way in which this plays out is how easily we talk ourselves into thinking that we can better witness to the gospel by being liked, by having successful and influential friends, by living a normal, middle-class Vancouver existence. We talk ourselves into thinking that this is a better way of witnessing to the gospel. We think the gospel is more palatable when it doesn't lead us to do crazy things. It's more palatable when we're just like everybody else around us. And what the writer of Hebrews shows us in Moses is that to put our faith in a crucified God means that our primary way in the world is to suffer with God's people and with God himself rather than to seek after pleasure and comfort and security. So that's the second point. It means to suffer. And the last thing I want to say about application is that our primary way in the world is to be an identification with the shame of Christ. And this too can play out in all sorts of ways, but primarily it means that we do not exert power over other people. Now again, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that to have faith in Jesus means that you're a doormat. Okay? It doesn't mean giving up all authority in whatever area you might have it. Absolutely not. God has given us all authority in one way or another in all sorts of different ways. I mean, think back to Genesis 1.26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I mean, God's plan for his people, for all of us, is to have authority over the earth, to rule it, to govern it, to love it. This is a command to have authority. But what I'm talking about is the way in which that authority actually gets exercised. To put our faith in the crucified God means that we do not exercise authority in the way that the world does, through power. Whatever authority we've been given, however great or however small, is to reflect that of our Lord Jesus. So that God might be glorified not in power and in our strength, but in weakness. So that we might say with King David from the psalm that we heard earlier, let not those who hope in you, God, be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, shame, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The shame of those who shame you, Jesus, has fallen on me. True faith is a faith that chooses to take on the shame of Christ, that chooses powerlessness in the face of power, knowing that our only hope, our only hope, is found in the God who, though more powerful than anything we can imagine, chose powerlessness in order to make us his treasured possession. 